I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. Uh, Rolling Stone recently proclaimed What's Going On by Marvin Gaye, the greatest album of all time. So today we're going to look at the complicated relationship between Marvin and Motown boss Barry Gordy. And they battled over the decision to release that record and also many other records and many other things. They were always at each other's throats over the years that Marvin was on the label. Yeah, you know, the story about a visionary artist battling his record label for creative control is a tale as old as the music business. But this really is a version of that story told on the grandest scale because the stakes are so high. I mean, on one hand, you have a man who prided himself on essentially building the pop music factory of all time in Motown, in which he was the ultimate auteur who picked the singers, the songs, and the musicians. And on the other hand, you have this visionary, tortured genius who wants to make his own statement about the state of the world and set it to music that will progress beyond the formulas of pop music. It truly is an epic battle. The thing that really fascinates me so much about their relationship is that it transcends the sort of artist-label brass relationship. Marvin married Barry's sister for reasons that definitely had at least a tinge of Machiavellian opportunism. So they were literally family. And Marvin looked to him in many ways like a mentor and a father figure. But, you know, as we know, Marvin's relationships with his father figures could be combative and you know at least this one was more fruitful and way less tragic than his relationship with his actual dad oh man yeah that's for sure i mean marvin gay versus his dad uh, would be a much darker episode uh so let's pivot away from that and let's look at marvin gay versus barry gordy let's get into this mess Marvin Gaye was born just outside of washington dc to a very very strict pentecostal minister marvin gay senior who would just brutally beat him as a boy for like minor offenses. And and he would say to him, I brought you into this world. I can take you out. And (sighs) he made good on this promise in 1984. I mean, it's just beyond tragic. I mean, Marvin's own mother admitted that Marvin Gaye Sr. never really wanted him and questioned whether he even ever loved his son. So relations between them were not great. And they got worse when Marvin Sr. lost his job, many jobs actually, and sort of descended into alcoholism throughout Marvin's childhood. So the only time there's really any harmony between the pair was when they sang together at the local church. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think this can be overstated that Marvin Gaye's dad was a total monster. I mean, I, <laughs> I saw this one documentary in which Marvin's sister tells this story about how their dad would rattle the buckle on his belt before he beat his children, you know, just to like psychologically terrorize them. I mean, this is like, he's like the guy in Saw or oh, something. Goodwill Hunting. Just, yeah, it's just awful. And, you know, and clearly that would have an emotional effect on anyone, but it really 
impacted Marvin Gaye. And we're going to see that as this episode unfolds, just the father-son dynamic that he would seek out like throughout his life and his relationships. Uh, you know, you know, Marvin, he was like this free-spirited kid. He was an artist. He was rebellious. And you know, his father would tell him, you're not mine. You have the devil in you. Oh. I mean, just, just, just awful treatment from his father. And it really divided him in half, too. I mean, David Ritz wrote this incredible biography about Marvin called Divided Soul, and that really sums it up. I mean, it really, he just felt cut in half between, you know, the church that he grew up in and the sort of the sensual pleasures of, of the secular world. And yeah, he was definitely, he was a, a tortured man, and it really starts here in his childhood with his dad. And his dad kicked him out regularly, and I guess finally, when he got kicked out one too many times, Marvin joined the Air Force, and he quickly realized that being in the military was even more oppressive than living with his dad. So he apparently faked a mental illness to secure a discharge. And uh, to make money, to make rent, he, uh, he sang and played drums in local bands, and he was gigging as a backing singer for people like Chuck Berry and a guy named Harvey Fuqua. And he made his first recordings with Harvey in a group called Harvey and the Moonglows. And they're on YouTube. There's a song called Mama Lucci, which I think is Marvin's first uh, appearance on record as a singer, as a lead singer. And it's really interesting. Definitely check it out. So Marvin moves to Detroit with Fuqua after uh, Harvey and the Moonglows split in 1960. And he, he's gigging around town as sort of a, a working session musician. And he's booked to play a gig at the Motown Records company Christmas party. And that brought him in contact with... Barry Gordy, who was apparently so impressed that he basically decided to sign him on the spot. Yeah, and you know, Barry Gordy was only 10 years older than Marvin Gaye, which isn't that great of an age difference, but it seems like from the beginning, he had this almost like patriarchal role in, in Marvin Gaye's life. And I think it has a lot to do with just the natural authority that Barry Gordy had. I mean, Gordy to me is that archetype of like the manifest destiny, great American, you know, that we we've seen throughout history. He's like the Daniel Plainview of soul, you know, like yeah. he's going out into the desert and he's going to find oil and he's going to become a millionaire. Only he's in the desert of Detroit and it's going to be with music. And if you look at his early life, there's these series of formative events that you can see really form his outlook as an artist because he was an artist. He was a songwriter. And also as a businessman, like for instance, when he was a kid, he was uh, selling newspapers in the black part of town. It was a black newspaper. And he had the idea one day that he was going to go into the white neighborhood and sell this newspaper. And he had tremendous success. He made twice as much money as he normally would. And the next day he decided, oh, I'm going to bring my friend with me. And, you know, because I want him to share my good fortune. And he found that when there were two black kids selling newspapers in the white neighborhood, that he didn't make any money at all. And the lesson that he learned there was that one black kid is charming to white people and two black kids can be frightening or off-putting. So that's one lesson that he learns. Another lesson that he learns is that when he's a little bit older, he loves music and he decides he's going to open a record shop and he's a huge jazz fan. So he decides that he's going to focus on selling jazz records, but he finds that people really don't want to buy jazz records. They want to buy pop and R&B records. So his record store goes out of business. So that's another lesson that he learns. And then after his record store goes out of business, he has to get a job. So he goes to the auto plant and he's working on the assembly line. And there he can observe this idea, you know, cooked up by uh, Henry Ford about the assembly line. This is a way that you can efficiently and relatively cheaply turn out a lot of high quality product and make a lot of money in the process. So from these lessons, we can see from selling newspapers, he learned something about the prejudices of white audiences from the uh, experience at the record store. He learns the taste of pop audiences. And at the Rado plant, he basically learns the way that he's going to be operating as the head of Motown. Like, he's going to operate Motown in the same way that Henry Ford built cars. We're going to turn things out according to a formula, you know, dictated by this sort of mastermind businessman. And we're going to become rich in the process. It's also important to know, too, that as a kid, Barry was a boxer, too. So you have all this business acumen wrapped up in this, like, pugnacious, like, bantamweight guy, too. So that, that I feel like the, the boxing element also colors his approach to, you know, how he approaches business deals, too. When I mentioned, you know, that he was a songwriter, and, and one of his most famous songs that he wrote early in his career is the song Money, mm. which was a hit for Barrett Strong, I believe, and then the Beatles covered it, and it's just become a soul standard. But you just think of the chorus of that song, you know, like, money is what I want. You know, and there's an irony to that. There's, a, you know, sort of an ironic message about America and capitalism in that. But it seems like, in a way, that you could just take that at face value too, right. in terms of, like, Barry Gordy's belief. Like, he wanted to be rich, and he had the vision to make it happen. 
And Marvin admired him so much. He, Barry became a huge role model in his life, you know, especially after he rejected his own father. Uh, you know, Gay was really influenced by strong men. I mean, there was managers, mentors, and later in life professional athletes. And uh, he, he would tell his biographer, David Ritzlater, I respected Barry for his guts, but even in the beginning, I knew we were destined to clash. But he was so impressed with Barry's ability to, to make money, date beautiful women. He just he would say, this cat was serious. So it, it was this push and pull from the very beginning, much like his own dad. And, uh, and Barry, as you said, was always looking out for number one. And that's something that I think Marvin also really admired about him. But also when it came to their personal relationship, it pissed him off. I think he had a begrudging acceptance of, of Barry's ability to control him because – I mean, first of all, Barry Gordy is one of the like most truly terrifying autocrats in music history. I mean, when you signed to Motown, Barry Gordy truly did own you. I mean, he first of all, the singers didn't choose what to sing. You were told what to sing by Gordy and his producers. And if you even if you wrote songs for Motown, like like Marvin did and Stevie Wonder and Smokey and those guys would also do, Barry had the publishing wrapped up from the very beginning too. And and by all accounts, royalty rates were really substandard, and song credits were often improperly assigned. So. It's really funny to think that actually the business stuff wasn't usually what Marvin and Barry feuded about. I think Marvin actually sort of, in a way, was impressed that Barry was able to get that level of control. But Marvin, as we learned with his dad, doesn't want to be controlled ever. I don't know how much we want to talk about this in this episode, but there's also the thing with Marvin Gaye's dad about him dressing up in women's clothing. Yes. And like how that was something that Marvin Gaye had a lot of angst over. That's something that in his own life drove him to act out in these sort of displays of machismo like throughout his life because he was frankly just like scared that what his dad did is something that he would end up doing in his own life. And that's, you know, obviously speaking to the prejudices of the time, you know, like about you know, the sort of discomfort with, uh, you know, I guess exploring gender identity and all that. But I wonder to what degree Marvin Gaye was attracted to Barry Gordy because Barry Gordy was more of a macho guy. He, like you said, he was this boxer. He was like, you know, very aggressive in business. He was dating all these beautiful women. It, it seems like in a way, Barry Gordy could be that sort of idealized macho dad that he didn't have in his real family. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. I mean, Marvin even, he changed his own name. He added an E to his name because he was worried people were going to pick on him for being in you know, a Marvin Gaye. Uh, so it was definitely something that really haunted him throughout his life. You're right. But getting back to this issue of control, I mean, that is the thing that ends up really animating the relationship between Marvin Gaye and, and Barry Gordy. Because like you said, on, on some level, the uh, the sort of alpha maleness of Barry Gordy, I think was something that Marvin Gaye responded to positively. And it, it instilled a lot of respect that he had for that head of Motown because Barry Gordy was like that. But Marvin Gaye also, again, was this rebellious person. And I think because Barry Gordy's control extended into to the art part of it. You know, it wasn't just the business part. It was also controlling the kind of music that his artists w was doing. Yeah, you know, I think that was something that obviously became like a huge issue in their relationship. Uh, you know, Marvin Gaye once said that, you know, I felt Barry was the pilot and I was the plane. And I don't think he said that in a positive way. Like, I don't think he really <laughs> liked feeling that way. Uh, and you see this like throughout the 60s, even, you know, years before what's going on, that like, Marvin Gaye is already sort of bristling at uh, the control that Barry Gordy is trying to put on him. And from Barry Gordy's perspective, I think it's worth noting that like Marvin Gaye for a long time was like not the biggest star on Motown. You know, the artists that were more tightly controlled by Barry Gordy, you know, the Supremes, Temptations, the Four Tops, they were much bigger in the 60s than Marvin Gaye was. And it kind of took Marvin a while like to ramp up. Marvin wanted to basically be the Black Sinatra. He wanted, he wanted to follow in Nat King Cole's footsteps and be this kind of middle-of-the-road balladeer-type figure, which, you know, and, and it was, and Barry just had visions in his head of when he tried to make a highbrow jazz record store that no one wanted to listen to. He said, no, this isn't what people want. They want to dance. They want R&B. Do this. And so, yeah, I think for the first couple albums, I think his first album was something called, what was it, like the Soulful Sounds of Marvin, Soulful Moods of Marvin Gaye, I think. And it was all like old, you know, American songbook type stuff, like My Funny Valentine and Love for Sale and Witchcraft. And yeah, they, they went back and forth on that for a long time, trying to figure out, you know, how to, uh, how to package him. And Marvin didn't want to be packaged. 
I mean, look, in these conflicts, I'm always on the side of the artist. You know, I think artists should be free to pursue their muse and do what they want to do. But I feel like in terms of the actual product, like Barry Gordy was maybe right, at least in the early years, because I mean, Marvin Gaye is an incredible singer, but like turning him into this sort of like black Sinatra type that Marvin Gaye himself wanted to be. I mean, I don't know that that music just seems a little snoozy to me. Like, like when he starts making more prototypical sounding Motown records, like in the 60s, that's when he starts getting really exciting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the thing I think we also got to talk about, too, is the fact that we mentioned this in the intro, too. Their relationship is complicated even further by the fact that Marvin is now part of his of Barry's family when he starts dating and ultimately marrying Barry's sister, Anna. And Anna is uh, 17 years uh, Marvin's senior. And uh, it, it's the whole thing just has shades not only of like Machiavelli, but also a little Oedipal, too, because I guess... A lot of people have said that Anna reminded them of Marvin's own mother. So that's, and especially if Barry is his sort of father figure. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there psychologically. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that Marvin Gaye was pretty screwed up sexually. Right. I mean, let, let's just, you know, again, we, we're not going to delve too deep into that. But I think just as a general statement, that's, I think I feel pretty confident in, in declaring that. Yeah. No, I, I I agree, and uh, and their relationship is really troubled too. I mean, he, he would there were really wonderful patches. He wrote the song "Pride and Joy" for her, and, and a number of other songs too. But they were also it was, it was rife with uh, they would get physically violent with each other at times. And things got even more strange when um, I think another of uh, I think Barry's teenage niece became pregnant, and Marvin and Anna adopted the baby as their own to sort of so people wouldn't talk that kind of thing. And I guess even Anna, like, wore, like, a fake bump for a time, too. So it added this other level of, like, intrigue in their family where they had this son who wasn't really their son, and it was this big family secret. So just layers upon layers. And then you have all the business stuff on top of that. So, yeah, Marvin's relationship with Barry gets increasingly intense and complex as the 60s progress. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. 
That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. So Marvin is now married to Barry Gordy's sister. He's already battling with Barry Gordy about his career direction, what kind of music he wants to do. Marvin Gaye doesn't want to be packaged. He wants to do these standards. He wants to do My Funny Valentine. He wants to do really music that's already seeming old-fashioned by the early 60s. Finally, there's a breakthrough when the writers at Motown come up with this song called Stubborn Kind of Fellow. And it's basically like a subtweet of Marvin Gaye because like they write this song for Marvin Gaye, but it's also saying like, dude, you're so stubborn, man. Like you, like you're a great looking guy. You have a tremendous voice, but you're doing these snoozy standards. Like we want to turn you into the pop star we know you can be. So they write him this song and it ends up being his breakthrough. And from then on, he's on his way. He's going to start becoming the Marvin Gaye that we all know and love. Right. I mean, you get songs like, can I get a witness? How sweet it is to be loved by you. Ain't that peculiar? Uh, But these all really kind of exacerbate the inherent inner conflict in Marvin because, again, it's pushing him into this this secular pop world and he he still feels uncomfortable there because of his religious upbringing. And he also feels incredibly stifled at this point by Motown's musical assembly line process. I mean, he's complaining that he felt like he was just Barry's puppet and that all the artists were just treated like products and everything was just all focused on sales and money. And, you know, they made hits like car factories in Detroit, you know? I mean, it was the same kind of process. They thought it was totally lacking soul. So he begins to fight with Barry, sometimes physically. There's Motown staff members who remember seeing uh, Marvin and Barry, like, tussling out in front of the lawn at Hitsville. Uh, like, like just literally, like, like Barry's in, like, boxing with him, basically. Uh, <laughs> which is funny because, you know, Barry was a boxer. I guess Marvin at that time was, like, 90 pounds and really just kind of scrawny. So, like, Barry could definitely take this guy, but it was it was like Cool Hand Luke. Like, Marvin didn't know when to just stay down. He kept going for it. And, you know, you, you have just all sorts of different Motown staffers saying, like, yeah, they were just having a pissing match all the time. Marvin was never going to give in. And um, as the 60s progressed, Marvin starts to get more and more politicized. And this is in the era when Motown makes their artists go to basically a finishing school to learn how to be, you know, kind of presentable for, for white audiences, as insane as that it's, sounds. It's the newspaper lesson right there. You know, it's going back to Barry Gordy's childhood. He feels like, yeah. oh, you have to act a certain way to appeal to white audiences. And, I mean, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And you can look at Motown's success early on as a testament to, uh, I guess, that lesson that he learned early on in his life. Yeah, and at this, at this sort of finishing school, they taught all the artists, you know, in interviews, don't basically talk about any don't basically talk about current events just sort of bland pet pleasantries and that's it so marvin starts showing up to interviews with like copies of malcolm x's biography and like soul on ice and these kind of like very very radicalized books and uh you know and barry sees this and he's not happy and probably i would say one of the most uh politically adventurous songs that motown released in in this period was uh, Marvin sang a version of the Dion song, Abraham, Martin, and John, about, you know, the assassinations of, uh, of Martin Luther King and um, John F. Kennedy and then Bobby Kennedy. But to that point, Motown really wasn't touching any of that stuff. They were the sound of young America. They were just supposed to be, you know, toe-tapping dance songs. So that is another layer of angst that's being laid on top of the Marvin Gaye, Barry Gordy dynamic. There's also going to be something else crucial that happens in Marvin Gaye's life that ends up just totally destroying him emotionally. And that's the death of Tammy Terrell, uh, which occurs in in 1970. She dies at the age of 24 uh, from a brain tumor. And, you know, Tammy Terrell is like one of those people that like, if you don't know her name, you know the duets that she sang with Marvin Gaye. I mean, you got songs like Ain't No Mountain High Enough, Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing, You're All I Need to Get By, just iconic Motown songs. And those two together just had this great thing going on in the late 60s. And really, like, some of the biggest hits that Marvin Gaye was having at that time were were with Tammy Terrell. Uh, But, you know, as early as 1967, uh, Tammy was having health problems. There was an incident in October of 67 
where she collapsed into Marvin Gaye's arms on stage. But she continued to work with Marvin uh, basically until the end of her life, until she was too sick uh, to perform. And when she died in, in 1970, it just, again, it devastated Marvin Gaye. I saw this story once, it was in, in one of the documentaries I watched, where he would go on stage and wouldn't, wouldn't even be able to sing. Like, he couldn't talk to the audience. Like, he was that despondent during this time. He also started getting deep into cocaine around this period. and. I think with Barry Gordy, as far as that relationship goes, like, didn't Barry Gordy, like, want to, like, immediately replace Tammy Terrell like, with another singer? I think it was Valerie Simpson. Like, pretty much, like, as soon as she couldn't sing, he wanted to put another singer in there. Yeah, they were doing another duets album, uh, Marvin and Tammy. I think it was Easy. It was their third duet album. And, yeah, and Tammy couldn't sing anymore, but they, you know, th- this duo sold an incredible amount of records, and they wanted to get one more out there. So for the last couple songs, I think Barry reportedly hired Valerie Simpson to kind of dub Tammy's parts, like ghost sing it. Like, and that really rubbed Marvin the wrong way. It really made it, the, the underlying sense that he had that, you know, Barry doesn't view us as, as people. He views us as products was really, really established then. And, and I think at the same time, too, and this was the era when a lot of the Motown artists were starting to really deal with substance abuse. And you've got people like, you know, Paul Williams from The Temptations, who died in the early 70s, and Florence Ballard, who left The Temptations and also died at a really young age in the early 70s, too. So a lot of his friends were really in a bad way. And I think on some level, Marvin blamed the Motown machine uh, for for pushing him further and further that way. And, and Barry was at the head of it. Yeah, and you can really see that, like, Marvin Gaye, I mean, it just seems like he felt lost at this time. Like, there's that story about, like, how he tried out for the Detroit Lions, like, which is insane. Is so you know, he's like, because he was just like, I don't know if I want to be a singer anymore. So maybe I'll play professional football. Which, <laughs> yeah, that it's crazy that that's your pivot or that's your yeah. backup job to play pro football. And of course, that didn't work because it's Marvin Gaye. The, 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 even the Detroit Lions, the sorry Lions, are not going <laughs> to sign Marvin Gaye uh, for, for their lineup. But even though Marvin Gaye decided to stay with Motown and to continue his career, it seems like this was a real turning point for him as far as like finally drawing a line in the sand about the show business aspects of Motown, that he was not going to play Kate Berry Gordy anymore. He did this thing where he grew a beard, which, you know, you look at that now, it doesn't seem like that's that big of a rebellious gesture. But for a pop star of his stature, especially someone who I think, again, he's such a great looking guy, his face is a big part of his appeal. And to grow a beard, I think was probably a pretty radical thing for him. Um, I mean, he even looked more handsome, I think, with a beard. I mean, like, but again, like Marvin Gaye's a, like just a movie star handsome person. But this all is, I think, leading up to what's going on because this is going to be his definitive break from the orthodoxy of Motown. And something I didn't really realize was that the song What's Going On was actually written by Obie Benson of the Four Tops. And he was on tour with the band and he saw some uh, cops beating up a kid in, uh, in San Francisco. And that kind of planted the, the seed in his head about the song. And he offered the the song to the Four Tops, and, and they passed. And he also offered it to Joan Baez, which is incredible <laughs> to think about. And she passed. I, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's that's really it would be definitely interesting, like alternate history right there. If, if Joan had done what's going on, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go on a limb and say it would not be as good right. as the Marvin Gaye version. <laughs> that's a, that's a fair, yeah. Uh, so eventually it landed with Marvin, and it suited exactly where he wanted to go with his music. And he would later say, you know, in 1969, 1970, I began to reevaluate my whole concept of what I wanted my music to say. I realized I had to put my own fantasies behind me if I wanted to write songs that would reach the souls of people. I wanted them to take a look at what was happening in the world. So he polished the melody and reworked some of the lyrics to reflect uh, his brother's, uh, Frankie's experiences in Vietnam as a soldier. And... His influence on the song, he basically turned it into more of a story than a song. Like, it's an incredibly visual work. I mean, the way it almost is like a poem rather than a song. Um, So this is really his first full-scale independent production. He paid for the sessions himself. He hired his own musicians, uh, including members of the Detroit Symphony. And he had some friends from the Detroit Lions in the session, too, adding the street chatter that you hear in the background. And, uh, and yeah, this was really, he would say that this was the t- moment that he really found himself in the studio, even down to his singing, his kind of like signature airy tenor, like the way his, his voice kind of floats. He's not really belting like he would on the, uh, on the sort of the more poppy Motown R&B stuff. This was really where we hear like, like this is where sexy 70s uh, Marvin Gaye's vocals really originate. 
Oh, yeah. And if you want a clear you know, demonstration of that, just play what's going on next to I Heard It Through the Grapevine. I mean, yeah. his vocal style is so different. And of course, I Heard It Through the Grapevine, that's awesome too, but it's much more of a forceful vocal. Whereas what's going on, like you said, it has this airy, almost jazzy quality to it. Just completely gorgeous. So, you know, imagine you're Marvin Gaye. You've paid for the sessions for the song, What's Going On. You know, you hear it and it's like, this is amazing. I've made this masterpiece. I have to play for the head of my record label. So he tracks down Barry Gordy, who I believe was on vacation at the time. Like, I, I, I'm not sure where he was. I just picture Barry Gordy in like Bermuda shorts or something. And, uh, big Marvin hat, Gay, a drink big with hat. an umbrella in it. Marvin Gaye plays what's going on for Barry Gordy. And Barry Gordy's response is, this is the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's the quote. That is the quote. That is the quote. That is literally what he says, that he hates what's going on. And if you know anything about Barry Gordy, you can see why he would react this way. Because it's a political song, and he believes, again, from his newspaper-selling experiences as a boy, that you don't alienate white audiences by doing anything that they might find threatening. And he, he believes that a black man talking about social issues is going to be threatening. Why would he think that's threatening? <laughs> it's like 50 years later, that's still true in America. But Barry Gordy is very upset that the song is doing that. And he also doesn't like the jazziness of it. Because again, that goes back to the lesson that he learned about his record store. That like, yeah. if you get too jazzy, if you get too complicated in pop music, that's going to turn the pop audience off. And his belief was just that, like, if, if you put this song out, it's going to ruin your career, and it's also going to diminish the image of, of Motown in general. So, like, yeah, he was just dead set against putting this song out. And they played it. Motown had the, the famous sort of quality control meetings that they would have once a week where they would play a bunch of songs and vote on which ones we put out as singles and which ones would just be album tracks and which ones would just, you know, get dumped. And I guess everybody at the quality control meeting hated the song except Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder was cool enough to get it, which... Of course. Of course. They also hated I Heard It Through the Grapevine, too, by the way. Yeah, exactly. They hated I Heard It Through the Grapevine and they hated What's Going On, arguably the two most famous songs that Marvin Gaye like, ever performed. So that shows what they know. Right. So Marvin is heartbroken. He, he's really he's trying to argue with, with Barry. He's trying to reason with him about what's going on out. And it, it's not going anywhere. So he decides to go on strike. And Motown says, okay, fine. And they put out a Marvin Gaye Greatest Hits compilation called Super Hits. And it's just, it, it's almost like what they did with Brian Wilson and Pet Sounds. They did the same thing where they put out a Greatest Hits album to kind of cover for Pet Sounds. Uh, it's this embarrassing, the cover is like a cartoon with Marvin as like a superhero carrying this like damsel over his shoulder it's like really weird marvin went nuts especially when he saw the artwork and demanded that they changed it they didn't it never was changed um marvin he, he was furious i mean this was to go from wanting to release your first self-produced song to basically ha and and move ahead and you know he's in his 30s now he wants to control his own artistic destiny to not only be denied the right to do that but then to have all this other stuff that you're not proud of then shoved in your face it, it was really adding salt in the wounds there. So that really pissed him off, and he dug in his heels even more and, re and still refused to record. And after a while, Motown's, they, you know, Ma Marvin's, I think, their biggest male singer at that point. They, they kind of want him back to, to, to make more product. And uh, Barry goes to Smokey Robinson and says, hey, you know, Smoke, try to get Marvin back into the studio. And Smokey says, hey, Barry, it's like a bear shitting in the woods. Marvin ain't budging. <laughs> That's true. That is true of, of bear shitting in the woods. They do not move. <laughs> and neither did Marvin Gaye. For months. And Barry Gordy didn't move either. I mean, the only reason why What's Going On came out as a single is that there was another executive at Motown Records, a guy by the name of Harry Balk, who essentially pressed up 100,000 copies of the single behind Barry Gordy's back and shipped it off to record stores. And if this would have failed, I'm sure Harry Balk would have been, you know, found in a car trunk somewhere. <laughs> uh, but it turns out that this becomes the fastest-selling single in Motown history. And, and before long, you know, before Barry Gordy really even knows what's going on, they have to order another 100,000 singles, you know, just to keep up with demand. One thing I think is like, I mean, look, what's going on is like just an incredible song. But you know, that, that fade out at the end where it fades out and it comes back up, I always thought that was kind of weird. Do you think that's like a shot at Barry Gordy on some level? Oh, I absolutely think it's a shot at Barry Gordy. I mean, it was like, oh, yeah, you, you think that that, like, song that you really hate's over? Oops, surprise, here it is again. I, I totally <laughs> think that was a Barry, yeah. 
So this song ends up becoming a huge hit for Marvin Gaye. And, you know, Barry Gordy, he can recognize, okay, I I didn't like this song, but I like to make money. So let's <laughs> let's put together an album, you know, with this song on it. But he still is hedging his bets here. He's like, I give you 30 days to make an album. And not only did Marvin Gaye live up to that, he actually made the album in 10 days. It's and insane. Which is amazing because you look at that album, you have songs like Mercy, Mercy Me, Inner City Blues, What's Happening, Brother. I mean, all songs that are very much in the vein of the title track, but are like really strong songs on their own. Uh, I mean, it's incredible that he was able to just turn around this masterful album that quickly. I think another fascinating thing about what's going on also is that it was a, I think it was like the first Motown record to actually credit the musicians in the liner notes. Like usually they would only credit it to the committee. You know, that was the name of, you know, this, this incredible backing band that was on all of these, uh, you know, wonderful Motown hits. And, you know, we know these musicians now, but I feel like someone like James Jamerson, for instance, who is now just revered as like one of the great bass players of R&B, soul and rock music and who's playing on this record is just so epic and beautiful. I feel like the cult around him really starts like with this album in a way. It's probably like the first time that people even knew like who were on these records. Oh yeah, I mean, and the Jamerson thing is great because I the legend is he showed up to the What's Going On, the, the single session, totally drunk. And he's playing that, that incredible melodic bass part. He's like flat on his back on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> According, that, that's the myth, at least. That's what, I mean, I choose to believe it because that's just how awesome uh, Jamerson is. But uh, yeah, I love that, that. That's great. And, you know, look, these things are easy to see in retrospect. And like even Barry Gordy went on to say that he felt that what's going on was like the signature album of Motown. Like he thought it was the best thing that they'd ever produced. So even he came to see the light, you know, decades later after this album had been valorized so many times. But uh, you know, it just uh, boggles my mind that a record like this would be considered controversial because not, you know, it is protest music, but it's also like a total like pop star move. Like you look at Marvin Gaye on the cover of that album. He looks amazing. He looks cooler so than cool. he will ever look in his life. He's wearing this like awesome black leather jacket. He's got like the, the canary yellow shirt and tie, you know, and that is, of course, being packaged with this music that is so beautiful and again, so progressive and just loaded with like melodic songs that, yeah, they're saying something profound, but like, even if you ignore the lyrics, like they're amazing songs. I just want to ask quick, and you know, I don't want to get too distracted here, but just as a quick sidebar, do you think What's Going On is the greatest album of all time? Because I'm not even sure if it's like my favorite Marvin Gaye record. There's other records that we're going to talk about here in a minute that I think I like a little bit more. That's no disrespect to What's Going On. I think it's a masterpiece, but like, do you think it's the greatest album ever? No, I mean, I, I recognize its importance. I feel about it the same way I feel about Imagine by John Lennon. I understand that it is this, you know, huge cultural monolith and, you know, a plea for, for peace. Uh, and I recognize what it means to people, but it's not something that I I put on very often and, and like groove out to. I mean, if, if I want that, I put on like, you know, I want you or, or let's get it on or something like that. Uh, yeah, it, it's, I don't think it's even my favorite of his. Which is weird. I mean, it's an incredible album. I mean, when I say that, that's not to, to dismiss what an incredible piece of work it is. But he has other incredible pieces of work, too, that I, I think I enjoy a little bit more. So what's going on? It comes out. It's a huge hit. It's also a chance for Marvin Gaye to really stick it to Barry Gordy at this point. Like, <laughs> both, like, I guess, personally and also professionally. Yeah, I mean, for all the, the credits on the back of the album, he, he had a, a big dedication section, too. And he, he put all sorts of people, I mean, his fame, he even put his dad on it, uh, which is interesting in retrospect. Barry's not on it, which, of all the people he thanked, Barry was not one of them which I think is, uh, is very telling. And, uh, and this is around the period when I think that the, the sort of the balance of power at Motown starts to tip in the favor of the artists and away from, you know, Barry and his committee. Because this album made Marvin, turned him from a hot R&B singer to like, you know, an important musical spokesperson. And uh, this was the same year, 1971, that Stevie Wonder turned 21 and he renegotiated his contract as an adult. And that gave him a lot more creative control that led to Music My Mind and Talking Book and his incredible run to follow. And this was also when the Jackson 5 came into the Motown. And Joe Jackson, it was, you know, I think Barry Gordy met his match in, in Joe Jackson. Joe, under, <laughs> under no uncertain terms, was like, yeah, you know, you're the head of Motown, but I'm the head of the Jackson 5. Don't, don't get it twisted. Uh, Another great dad, by the way, <laughs> Joe Jackson. Another father of the year right there. 
So this is like, you know, to use the factory analogy, this is when sort of the power Motown was now in the hands of the workers. You know, Karl Marx would be thrilled with this. So uh, Barry Gordy realizes this, that the kids that he mentored were now more talented than he was. And, and he would later say, you know, for a person with my ego, this didn't sit very well with me. You know, the, the Motown sound was no more. Now it was a collection of different artists doing their own thing. And, and Barry kind of busied himself with, he was really trying to launch Diana Ross as the solo film star, solo act, Vegas act, all around performer kind of deal. And Marvin felt rejected by this. He thought that, you know, that Barry loved Diana more than him. And uh, he also was really freaked out when um, when Jermaine Jackson married Barry's daughter, Hazel, because he thought he'd been sort of supplanted as sort of the Gordy family's Motown prince. And he would later say, I saw myself being replaced. Jermaine was a singer marrying into the family just the way I had. And just when I was being moved out, it was all part of Barry's plan to give himself a new, younger Marvin Gaye. And again, you can just see this dynamic playing out again where Marvin Gaye, he wants to please Barry Gordy. He's feeling threatened because he sees a younger singer coming into the family and supplanting him. And and he feels that he's maybe not going to get the same kind of love or attention from Barry Gordy that he got in the past. So there's that part of it. But then there's also the other part where, you know, he wants to rebel against Barry Gordy. And he wants to, again, just stick it to him over and over again. And you can see this with Let's Get It On, that record. Uh, that comes out in the 73. And with that record, Marvin Gaye was was given this huge contract. It was like a million-dollar contract. I think he was like the richest black recording artist uh, of that time. And he wasn't just satisfied with getting that money. He actually wanted Barry Gordy himself to sign the check. I love this. Again, this is like another instance of like, you know, tracking Barry Gordy down at Marvin Gaye's request, you know, <laughs> so they could get a signature on here. And I guess, like, Marvin Gaye had the check blown up to, like, novelty size and, like, put over his fireplace, you know. And it's, it was, so, it's like a kid with a report card, like, just, like, putting it on the fridge. Yeah, exactly. And he's like, yeah, I want Barry Gordy to personally be giving me all this money. And, like, he said later on that he's like, you know, my goal, like, I wanted to be richer than Barry Gordy. You know, I, I wanted to have the same kind of power than him, even more power. I want to kill my father. My father exactly figure. another Oedipal like overtone to this, but you know the thing with Marvin Gaye as opposed to Barry Gordy is that I think Barry Gordy had a ruthless core to him that kept him relatively stable, you know, throughout the decades that he could maintain his kingdom because he wasn't going to let anything distract him from the task at hand. Whereas Marvin Gaye was very distractible, yes. and around this time he ends up getting distracted by a seventeen-year-old girl named Janice Hunter, who ends up being the muse for Let's Get It On. Uh, and I think she was like in the studio with him, even like when he was per- like when he was recording the song Let's Get It On. Wasn't she like in the recording booth with him? So he was like literally singing this song to this teenage girl. That's what I read. Yeah, he was like looking her in the eyes as he sang Let's Get It On, which definitely impacts my ability to appreciate Let's Get It On. But, exactly. Yeah. We've ruined the song for all of you uh, by pointing that out. And, you know, from Barry Gordy's perspective, I'm sure this song did not sit well because the song, at best, is about Marvin Gaye having sex with his sister. <laughs> That's the best case scenario. <laughs> the worst case scenario is that it's a song about Marvin Gaye having sex with his high school-aged mistress. Uh, from his sister. That's definitely the worst case scenario. And that's it seems like that's the actual scenario here because uh, it seems like this is the point where the marriage between Marvin and Anna is really starting to go down the tubes. Yeah, in the mid-70s, Marvin leaves Anna Gordy for, for Janice Hunter. And, you know, this is a risky move. And it, it goes beyond any kind of fear of like any kind of career retribution. As you said, he's afraid, Mar- Marvin is afraid of losing Barry's love. Like, I think that's what it boils down to. It wasn't just like, oh my God, I'm gonna piss off my label head. I, I think it was, he had so much wrapped up emotionally in Barry that I think that was his biggest fear. And the same when Jermaine married his daughter. And Marvin grew increasingly paranoid that Barry and Anna were colluding against him. And uh, I, I guess there was a time that he was so paranoid that he refused to record for Motown for a while. Um, I mean, not very long, but long enough, a couple months. And um, as part of the divorce settlement, Anna asks for a million dollars, and Marvin definitely didn't have the cash. Uh, And this was the late 70s, and he was facing bankruptcy on his home, and cars were lost to foreclosure. And I think at one point, he was nearly imprisoned for owing $4.5 million to the IRS. And this is in the 70s with inflation. I mean, that's a a huge bill. And there was a time, I think this was around the time that he was living on the beaches in Maui in like a bread van or something. Like, 
His finances were not in tip-top shape. Can we just say, like, is it awesome to be living in a bread van in Maui doing tons of cocaine, or is tons that of sad? Because uh, part of me thinks that's the most depressing thing I've ever heard. The other part of me is like, 1977, living on the beach, <laughs> doing tons of blow. That sounds kind of awesome. Like, you know, if it was just like a brief phase. I guess if you had the choice to do that, uh, that'd be one thing. But if you're just a coke addict and you don't really have a choice, then it, then it's sad. You know, maybe that's the difference there. I don't know. Part of me is a little bit jealous of Marvin Gaye in his lifestyle at this time. Oh, yeah. Even his tragedies around now have kind of this like glamorous ring. The IRS showed up to Marvin's uh, studio in LA once to, to foreclose on it. And uh, and Barry got wind of it and, and ended up paying Marvin's tax bills around the same time. So again, no matter what was going on with him interpersonally, Barry had his back. And Marvin wasn't at the studio at this time because he was apparently at the Super Bowl. So as his studio's being foreclosed on, he's at the Super Bowl. So you're right. There's a lot of, there's a, there's a yin and yang to Marvin Gaye's Black Knights of the Soul, I guess. Yeah, there's always like a silver lining to it. Right. It's like, at least you got to see, I guess that would have been like Terry Bradshaw and the Pittsburgh Steelers, <laughs> you know. It's probably a great Super Bowl. Yeah. So things are going, you know, mixed bag in Marvin's personal life, but he doesn't have a lot of money. So his lawyer has a really interesting solution for a divorce settlement. He says Marvin can pay $600,000 to Anna Gordy, half of which would come from the advance from his next album, and the other half would come from the album's royalties. So basically, he would make an album, and all the proceeds to it would go to Anna. So, you know, all he had to do was go into the studio and just bang out a piece of garbage quickly, just anything. And, you know, and that, and that was part of the, the beauty of the deal was that if, you know, if it tanked, it didn't matter. He lived up to his part of the, uh, of the, uh, of the bargain by, by making this album. Uh, but he's an artist. And as soon as he gets in there, he's so inspired by, you know, I, I think he's definitely one of those artists that works best in a state of like emotional uh, uh, turmoil. And obviously that was where he was at with this album. And he records his only double album called Here, My Dear. Yeah, and I have to say, you know, going back to the what's going on, is that the greatest album of all time? I have to say that for me, Here, My Dear is my favorite Marvin Gaye record. And maybe this has to do with my personal bias in favor of like personal songwriting versus political songwriting. You know, as much as I love the political anthems on what's going on, just the turmoil that was going on in Marvin Gaye's life at this time and how he was able to transform it into this absolutely gorgeous music. I mean, this is like Prague soul, like yeah. just epic songs that go on for like seven, eight minutes and have all these different movements and just like the gooeyest harmonies you've ever heard. And this music being set to lyrics that are like, the most brutal breakup song lyrics I think I've ever heard. I mean, if we talk about like the greatest breakup albums of all time, you know, Dylan's Blood on the Tracks, Joni Mitchell's Blue, or, you know, Springsteen's Tunnel of Love, you know, those songwriters, they're usually dealing like in metaphors, you know, or they're being like vague about the connections between the art that they're making in their personal lives. Marvin Gaye doesn't have any use for metaphors at all on this <laughs> record. When he writes a song about Anna, it's called Anna's Song. When he's writing a song about how this record is being made because he has to pay off his wife's alimony, he calls it, you can leave, but it's going to cost you. You know, like that is how upfront he is on this album. And it is one of those things like where you listen to it and it is kind of embarrassing sometimes to listen to it yeah. because it is so, again, unadorned and lyrically. But I think that's where a lot of the power of the album comes from. And again, combining it with this, this beautiful music. It's such a bizarre, beautiful, singular piece of work. It, it just compels me to no end, you know, every time I put it on. Oh, it has my favorite single note in Marvin Gaye's entire discography on Anna's song when he just screams, Anna. He hits this wail that it sends shivers down my spine every time I hear it. It's just pain and angst, but it's also Marvin Gaye's voice. So you have, it. it it's, it's so beautiful and airy. It, it, yeah, that... That whole album is, is unbelievable. But as you said, I mean, the, the lyrics are, are so personal that I guess Anna threatened to file a $5 million uh, invasion of privacy suit against him uh, for these lyrics, which I I don't know if there's a precedent for that, for suing someone over song lyrics like that. Uh, it, it, is, it, it is brutal. And of course, the album comes out and it's a failure commercially and also critically. I think critics at the time were just repulsed by this album. You know, they gave it really poor reviews. I think in retrospect, people have come around to appreciating it as a masterpiece. I think people now are really into this record. Um, obviously, Barry Gordy was not going to promote this record. I mean, 
you know, this is his sister again. You know, Marvin Gaye is in his family. He's making this album about his sister. And uh, all these songs that are, and again, like this album is really angry. There's a lot of anger on it. There's a lot of hurt on it, but it is in a way like character assassination for Anna Gordy. So, uh, yeah, this just puts his relationship with Barry Gordy like in another level of disrepair. But it really, it says a lot about Barry and as you said about his sort of cold, business-minded heart where he, by all accounts, didn't blow up at Marvin over this at all. And whereas he, he very easily could have. I mean, he may not have promoted this as much as it, as it could have been. But uh, yeah, in terms of you know, friends and, and family relationships. I mean, th- this could have been a, very easily a deal breaker. But, you know, at the end of the day, Barry Gordy was a businessman and Marvin was his most valuable asset at that time. So he he let it go. Yeah, it really wasn't until the next record in our lifetime where they finally separated. And even then, it was Marvin's decision. I That album, not one of my favorite albums and by all accounts, not one of Marvin's favorite albums either. Um, he spent a number of years working on it. And... Um, he was really in rough shape at this time with, with drugs and very little money. I mean, this is really sort of when he was bottoming out. And uh, he spent, I think, three years working on this album. Motown was saying, you know, okay, we, we need this. Please turn this in. And they ended up releasing it when it was unfinished to Marvin's satisfaction. He says that they, he, he claims that somebody actually from Motown actually stole the tapes from the studios recording in, and I think in London, and um, went and put some overdubs on it and just it mixed it in a different way that he wasn't happy with and, and released it. And Marvin was absolutely furious. I mean, he would say in interviews, Motown shafted me. How could they embarrass me like that? You know, he compared it to, to somebody going to Picasso and saying, all right, Picasso, you've been working on this long enough. It's like stick an arm here and a leg there. And all right, we're done. Uh, if you don't like it too bad. <laughs> Uh, he, he was absolutely heartbroken, and he said, you know what? I'm not going to work with Motown anymore, and he didn't. That was the last album he ever did for him. And, you know, there have been other instances, of course, where Marvin Gaye was refusing to work, and, you know, that's where What's Going On comes out of there. You know, there was another kind of work stoppage, I guess, around the time of Here, My Dear. And this is another work stoppage, but this time Barry Gordy is actually, like, pretty cooperative and says, okay, you want this to be your last record? If we can come to an agreement, yeah, I want to make this as painless, basically, as we can make it. So Barry basically let Marvin Gaye go, even though Marvin Gaye was still, like, a pretty big star and, like, one of his biggest earners. And I think from Barry Gordy's perspective, I wonder if he just, like, had enough at that point where he felt like, okay, I am going to take a financial hit for this, but on some level, my life is also going to be a little bit easier because I don't have to deal with this guy's problems anymore. I mean, do you think that's a fair assessment? Oh, totally, yeah. And I, I also, I have to wonder about Barry's state of mind in that period, too, because not only did Marvin leave, but Diana Ross also left him at this time, too, for RCA. And his relationship with Diana was probably just as complicated, if not more, than his relationship with Marvin Gaye, because they, I think they were together for a while romantically, and 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 she was an equal, she was kind of like the queen of Motown to Marvin's king of Motown. Uh, and so at that point, he must have really just been like just hurting, not only from a financial standpoint of what's going on with my company right now, because the 80s weren't all that great for Motown, but also just these these people that I put so much of myself into and and, and worked with and was a mentor to and, and, and family to are both gone. I almost wonder if at that point he just, he was, I don't want to say too weak, but just saying, you know what, fine. Fine. I can't. I've been holding on so tightly to this massive empire and trying to control people for 20 plus years. I don't have it in me anymore. Just go. You know, there's this interesting postscript to Marvin Gaye's tenure on Motown, which is the Motown anniversary special that aired in 1983. I don't know if you've seen this performance, but like, like Marvin Gaye. Weird. Yeah, it's very weird. He's in this special. And I guess like Barry Gordy like reached out to him personally and like asked him to be a part of the show. And when we talk about the anniversary special now, everyone just talks about Michael Jackson because that was like the first time he did the moonwalk. And it is just considered like an iconic Michael Jackson performance. But Marvin Gaye comes out and he spends about three minutes like sitting at the piano and like giving this history lesson. And he's talking about like, he's talking about the history of Motown. He's talking about slavery. There's like a little bit about like New Orleans. Rent parties. Yeah, he's talking about sex. And he looks super high in this video. But he's playing the piano beautifully, even as he's giving this rambling monologue. And then all of a sudden, like the backing band just like charges in and they, they start playing what's going on. And he performs like a short version of what's going on. And it's pretty good, but like he doesn't look like he's in great shape at that time. 
No, yeah, that was kind of when he was really on the, the final decline. I think it was after sexual healing had come out. He cleaned up his act a little bit, but I think that was when things started getting really bad for him. It's, it's a very strange performance. You're right. Because, uh, yeah, the band, it's almost like the band was waiting for him to actually play an intro. And then by minute three, they're like, okay, we're making a TV special here. This has got to be timed pretty well. <laughs> Let's just come in. All right, here we go. And then he, he leaps up and starts singing. But right. uh, yeah, that was about a year almost exactly before his death. Yeah, and again, his death, is it the worst musician death ever? I can't think of a more disturbing way to die. Horrific, yeah. I mean, especially when, I guess his brother stood over his body after he'd been shot, and and supposedly Marvin's last words were, you know, I wanted this. I didn't want to do it myself. I, I knew what I was doing. Apparently, his last words are about how he provoked his father to do this, which is just adds an even more disturbing element. It's It's really horrendous. Well, and we should probably just say for people who don't know the story that like Marvin Gaye was staying at his father's house at the end of his life because he, again, was dealing with, with drug addiction. He was not in a good way financially. And there was some sort of altercation with his father where I guess his dad felt threatened by his son and he like shot his own son and killed him. Like that's the story there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is really. And then they uh, they took Marvin Gaye Sr. to prison and somebody asked him at the police station what his relationship, did you love your son? I think was the question. And he said, his, his quote was, well, let's just say I didn't not like him. <laughs> yeah. And of course, Barry Gordy hears this news and he's devastated as, as he would be. But it does seem like Barry Gordy in a way almost felt like he lost his own son in this thing. Because as much as Marvin looked at Barry Gordy as a father figure, it seems like there was a reciprocal feeling there. Like, Don't you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he he took out full-page ads in entertainment newspapers calling Marvin the greatest singer of all time. And I guess Barry had a, a longstanding um, policy of not really dealing with the press. But in this case, he he talked to everybody saying that how Marvin was was the best of all time. The closest person I could relate him to is Billie Holiday. And, and I think Marvin's even better, Barry said. So... Yeah, he, he eulogized them every chance that uh, that he could, but I don't think I don't think it's something he ever got over. We're gonna take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con: The Story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, "Oh, what's your best way of making money?" I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? 
Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, now we've now reached the part of the episode where we look at the pro side of each side of the rivalry. Let's start with uh, Barry Gordy. You know, I think the term genius gets overused a lot in music, but like with Barry Gordy, I think he's like one of the few people like where the term really applies. I mean, just as a songwriter, he wrote so many classic songs. I mean, we didn't really even delve into his songwriting career, like all the hits that he wrote for Jackie Wilson before he really got rolling with Motown, you know, like Reap Petite and all those wonderful you know, Jackie Wilson hits. But his most profound talent really was for creating this assembly line for pop music that was both commercially successful and like creatively viable and excellent. You know, like he wasn't just turning out pop songs. He was turning out like some of the greatest pop songs of all time uh, throughout the 60s and 70s. To me, he truly is like the Henry Ford of pop <laughs> music, or I guess like the, the Daniel Plainview of soul, as I said earlier, too. Uh <laughs> Even if he overstepped his boundaries sometimes with artists by being overly controlling, I mean, you can't argue with his track record. I mean, Motown is, I think, the great American record label of the rock era. Uh, and Barry Gordy's responsible for that. Oh, yeah. I mean, even if he if Barry was just responsible for a Marvin Gaye, I think his place in, in music history would be assured. But to think that Marvin was just one of dozens of threads that all go back to, to Barry, it's just it's just absolutely mind-boggling. Um, and and Marvin recognized that in the last months of his life, you know, long after he left Motown, he said, say what you want about Barry. If it wasn't for him, you wouldn't have heard of any of us. BG had the vision. They all called him BG. And yeah, you know, you really got to wonder if what would have happened with Marvin Gaye if he hadn't come across uh, uh, Barry Gordy. And you wonder if he just would have been, you know, one of many backing singers with Harvey Fuqua and other sort of like doo-wop groups. Or if he would have tried to make a go of it as sort of a, a Nat King Cole style crooner which I don't think would have cut through in the 60s. I don't think that was, I think maybe Marvin in the early 60s was thinking that the, the, the music scene was going to progress as it had in the 50s. And there was sort of a more of a, a middle of the lane uh, uh, place for him to do those kind of songs. But I think that it really didn't work out that way. And he needed someone like Barry to push him in that, that more commercial uh, R&B direction. And, you know, also for all the people who say that Marvin is this incredible audio auteur, and he is, he had had a decade of working with some of the best musicians and songwriters and producers in the business. So, you know, before he broke all the rules with what's going on, he learned the rules from the Motown team and they're the best in the business. I think that was really invaluable. So I think that as much as he would disparage his 60s pop output, I think that all the timeless 70s work was really built on that. So if we switch over to the pro Marvin Gaye side, I mean, look, it's Marvin Gaye. You know, right. he'd be saying more. I mean, I think Smokey Robinson once called Marvin Gaye the most talented singer that he ever knew, you know, and that's Smokey Robinson saying that. So that says a lot. And as far as troubled as he was, especially later in his life, I mean, he's still like one of the greatest singers and songwriters and arrangers and record makers uh, of all time. And he made what many people consider to be the greatest album ever with what's going on. And even if you don't think that's the greatest album ever, he also made Let's Get It On. He made I Want You. And he made Hear My Dear. I mean, again, Hear My Dear, one of the strangest and most beautiful <laughs> and, and most fearless albums, I feel like, to come out of the 1970s. So I look at Marvin Gaye and I just see this great combination of both a pop star and a genuine artist who was willing to put everything on the line to pursue his vision. And, you know, here we are decades after his death and his music still sounds as good as it ever did. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that his work uh, gave Motown sort of, was a social conscious of, of Motown, and I think that they needed that in that era. It really gave, I think to that point in the early and mid-60s, the fact that Motown existed at all was the statement. It was a black-run business run by black people for black people and, and the world. And I think that by actually speaking out on what was happening in the world was was sort of the next step for that. Also, I feel like, Marvin's actual musical chops aren't commented on enough. He's an amazing musician. There's an amazing clip of him just playing at a grand piano. I think it was in a documentary from 1981 when he's touring in Belgium, I think. And he's just ripping on Come Get to This and, and Distant Lover. And it is unbelievable. It's absolutely worth checking out. You really need to see it. Uh, so on top of, you know, incredible groundbreaking pop visionary, amazing singer, I just want to give props to his uh, musical skills, too, as, a, as an instrumentalist. 
So if we look at these two guys together, I think it's pretty clear the father-son dynamic, as messed up as it was psychologically, I think especially for Marvin Gaye, it did work for them. I mean, I think Marvin Gaye needed a father figure in his life to give him guidance and also just as a something to play off of, you know, something that he could rebel against. And when you look at an album like What's Going On, it clearly caused him to do great things when he felt like he could sort of strike out against some person that was trying to control him too much. And then when you look at Barry Gordy, you know, he has this rebellious son figure that he's trying <laughs> to put in his place. And yet the son ends up I think helping out the father a lot by rebelling against him. You know, like the fact that Marvin Gaye made what's going on really changed the face of Motown and it allowed, I think, Motown to move into the 70s and to continue to prosper. I think without Marvin Gaye, for instance, I think it would have been a lot harder for Stevie Wonder to do what he eventually did. You know, and if Barry Gordy had continued to control these artists and not allow them to really spread their wings and to make these incredible, ambitious records, I think they would have faded a lot faster. I think they would have been looked at as sort of an old fashioned record label instead of what they became in the 70s, which was, you know, sort of staying on. On the cutting edge of what pop music could be. So yeah, I, th I think it's clear that these guys, as much as they uh, had a poisonous relationship at times, it does seem like they brought the best out of each other in, in many instances. Yeah, and I think that they, this really complicated, almost familiar relationship that we were talking about between Barry and, and Marvin ended up uh, working in um, in Barry's favor too, because I think he treated Marvin like a favored, if you know, somewhat spoiled child. I think that he let Marvin get away with a lot more than he would any other of his artists. You know, I think if, if any other artist on the label tried to pull the kind of stuff that Marvin was pulling, I'm, I have no doubt that they would have gotten the boot so much sooner. But I think that Barry recognized uh, Marvin's brilliance and let him get away with the stuff that, as you said, really ended up transforming Motown for the new decade. So is it fair to say that we now know what's going on with these two guys? <laughs> oh, Stephen, how sweet it is to do this show with you, Stephen. Oh, man. My favorite part of the episode, the terrible joke, right. the pun on the artist's song title. I hope you guys enjoyed as much as we do. Uh, we have now reached the end of another episode of Rivals. Thank you for joining us, and we'll be back with more beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments next week. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstadt. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis, mm -hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.